Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob again. I've got Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO, and I've got Beverly E. Jones here today. Hey Beverly, thanks for coming on the show. Well, it's a pleasure, Bob. Thank you. All right. So, Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. That's a bit of a conundrum there because entrepreneurs, are they good CEO material or, or are we needing more entrepreneurs in the CEO position? What do you think? Well, I think... Um The answer to the question is maybe, maybe not. (laughs) There are two different sets of characteristics. But what I found in my book is regardless of where you are in business or, for that matter, in government, I do a lot of work with senior government officials, for example, there's some entrepreneurial characteristics and some leadership characteristics uh, that sometimes overlap, sometimes don't. One of them is being optimistic and positive and how you interact with people. Great entrepreneurs have that, and it's a very important value in leadership. So I I think there are a lot of overlapping characteristics, and and then there's there's some that that willingness to reinvent yourself and take risks. Uh, Sometimes that works in leadership positions. Sometimes uh, it's less welcome. It depends on where you are. Do you think like entrepreneurial spirit is more, I have a new idea and then, you know, a couple hours later, a couple of days later, they have a new idea and they get excited about that and there's a lack of follow-up um, and they're all about the building or all about the new shiny thing and the CEO is more of a person that's like, okay, let's make a plan, let's use the plan, that type of thing. I think that's sort of the cliche was more the situation in the past, but I I think something they have in common is everything starts with listening. So whether you're a small entrepreneur or you're leading a big company or organization, the first thing is to find out what are your customers saying, and that's that's maybe where you find the uh, shiny object. But keep listening, keep listening, keep listening, even if what you're taking in means you need to pivot. And the next thing is, um, once you have um, the shiny object inside, getting it in your pocket typically takes a plan, some discipline and measurement to see if you're following your plan. And that's the case uh, with leaders, I think, at all levels, whether you're a a one-person shop or you have a lot of people following you. And also thing is failing is a great learning experience, and a lot of leaders have had to learn that, whether they wanted to or not, and they've benefited from kind of bouncing back the way small entrepreneurs have. Well, you mentioned listening skills, and I think that's critical. I don't think there's enough uh, listening going on and way too much talking in business. What are, something, what are some things that people can do to improve their listening skills? Well, it's a, it's a skill that you can learn. It's a skill that you practice, and you can build your listening muscle, as I think of it. And, and the way you do that is you start by noticing the voice in your head. When you're in a conversation 
it's so easy to be thinking either what am I going to have for dinner, did I let the dog out, or to be listening to what the other person is saying and framing what you're going to say next. Or protesting. Sometimes the voice in your head is saying, oh, he's so wrong, this guy doesn't make any sense, or he's so boring. So the first step in learning to listen in a more effective way is to notice the voice in your head and learn how to put it aside. And I I find um, you can practice that anywhere as you're going through your day. You can practice it with the barista when you pick up your coffee, or you can practice it when you talk to members of your family. If you could notice that voice is intervening and maybe getting defensive or argumentative, you just put it aside. And there's a lot of reinforcement in the process because at some level, conscious or not, other people know whether you're really listening. And as soon as you're really listening, it changes the nature of the exchange. So if you get it, if you practice it, you start to notice that people are connecting with you in a different way. Yeah, I think it's very true. I think if you're listening intently, it's very hard for your inner self to get, you know, to butt in. And, and you know, it'll be always trying. But if you're constantly listening to what the person say and, and you know, not even studying it, just taking it in. And, and I think a lot of people lose that is like listening intently isn't analyzing what they're saying because that's you having a discussion with yourself. It's more what are they actually saying now and, and getting excited about what you're saying. Right. And then going to the next step. Yes, and it, uh, people are born um, with a, a need to be listened to, to be seen and acknowledged, but particularly to be listened to. It's, it's part of how we've evolved. And if they're deprived of that opportunity, if they go through life or business or a meeting without being listened to, their inner voice starts to get upset. So if you can genuinely listen, you're giving somebody a gift, but you're also giving your an opportunity, yourself an opportunity to take an information, you start both feeling a little better about each other, even if maybe you're on opposite sides of the table, and, and, and you get a little bit more in sync. It's, it's a beautiful process. Well, I think, too, is, is part of negotiation and doing business is, is all about trust, and there's been lots of books out there on trust. But if you're constantly listening to people and you're being authentic, they're going to tend to trust you way faster than somebody that's always jumping on your sentences and bullying their way into the conversation because they feel that what they have to say is more important than what you have to say. Absolutely. And and even if you're not a bully, even if you're glib and funny and amusing, if you don't get uh, leave enough room to actually have an exchange doesn't matter how charming you are in the short term. In the longer term, people are going to not trust you. Now, this book's fascinating because it's broken down into 50 sections. I, I you know, I'm one of the first thing I do with a book is I'll look at the contents page and I go to your contents page. It's like, holy cow, there's 50 chapters. And I love it because, you know, everybody's so busy these days and, and really you're just looking for a bite-sized answer so you can get on with your day and learn. So this is a book I think that you want to have on your desk and it should be dog-eared in the sense that, you know, as your day comes on, if you've got like a couple of minutes, it's almost like you, you scan through it and say, oh, hang on, um, how to create a mentoring that works for both both ways. Okay, maybe I'll read chapter 27 because I've got to talk to my daughter in three hours or I've got to talk to one of my employees three hours and maybe I'll learn something there that I can bring to the conversation. So uh, it's an awesome tool for 
uh, approaching day-to-day dilemmas. Now, I wanted to ask you, what motivated you to, to write this book? Well, I wrote it rather gradually. I, I've had quite a varied uh, career myself from being a lawyer and law firms and being an executive with a big company. But um, 14 years ago, I felt that I was situated so I could do what I really wanted to do, which was executive coaching, coaching leaders and entrepreneurs and senior government officials to step up their game a bit. And when I started, I felt like I need some quick advice if I'm going to listen um, to have people talk about, say, talking to their boss. I, I, I just wanted, you know, I have a background as a lawyer. I wanted to read up on every topic. And I found every time I had to uh, I had a new topic I was kind of mulling over. I had to read a whole book, and it was very hard for me to find some quick tips that I could share with my client if at the end of the time of coaching, and of course, coaching is a lot about listening, not telling people, but very often I wanted to leave with some tips. I couldn't find them. So I started um, a newsletter for clients, and I, I wrote many, many. I've written almost 300 of them over the years in which I did my best to do the research, look at the issues that I see again and again, and really try to reduce it down so that I could be as succinct as possible. And over the years, people kept saying, why don't you just put it in a book? I want it in a book. (laughs) So I I had a stack of, I think I had 80 topics, and I tried to um, make them as concise and I hope a little bit entertaining as possible and, and, and leave everybody with some practical tips for the things that I I've just heard the most and that I think are so critical uh, at wherever you are in your, your, your business career, your professional career. Now, I know this is an unfair question, but do you have any uh, chapter that stands out for you as, as being, you know, one that really resonated for you? Yes, and it's one of the shortest chapters. Uh, the, the chapter is on how do you deal with praise, with praise that you receive, which I thought was um, just my um, problem because I you know, was brought up to be a very modest um, uh, person. And my parents said, you know, if you get good grades in school, don't tell the other children, they'll feel bad. So I, I had a hard time. And when I was starting out my career, see, when I was a young lawyer, if I wrote a great memo and the partner said, oh, good job. I'd say, oh, it's nothing. And it finally dawned on me that if I say it's nothing, that partner's going to believe it's nothing. So I learned to not be so self-deprecating. I was undercutting myself. Uh, And then as I got into coaching, I noticed that it was a problem that many, many people have. I I think I, I notice it more among women, but it's certainly not an issue that only women have. And so I, I've written about it a few times in a few different places, and it is, I get more clicks, hits, comments, phone calls on that topic than anything I've ever written about, even though it's, uh, you know, pretty short. And my basic advice is to say thank you when somebody praises your work. Well, you know, I was just uh, scanning through here and say, be prepared with clever ways to brag, which I think is a hilarious title for a, a chapter, but it's so true. You have to prepare. You have to know um, when to step in and, and, and utilize an opportunity. 
So what do you think is 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 bragging a, a bad thing or is it a, is an important tool with helping people understand the value that you're bringing to a team? It's an important tool and I and it's that same de- self-deprecating inclination we have that we have to manage. Certainly we don't want to sound like we're bragging, but we need to get the information out. And 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 there are a few ways you can do it. One thing is I tell people is you have to have a love me file somewhere. And every time somebody sends <laughs> you a thank you note or um, an assessment that's good, put it in the file to just remind you. But another really clever way to brag, I think, is is to compile the data. If you can count the number of times you've done something, whether it's writing a blog post or um, uh, making a sale of some kind, the more you keep track of things, the more you compile the data, then you can talk about your achievements in a very matter-of-fact, modest way, and that makes the case for you. So kind of keeping track of your successes and then finding ways to measure them um, gives you a a chance to to let people know what you're doing and what you're doing well. And then if a headhunter calls and says they've got this great opportunity, you won't go rushing off to your coach and say, I don't know what to say. I can't think of anything good I've done. You'll be all ready. You'll have the information. Well, it's also part of being conscious. I mean, you have to be aware of the value that you're bringing an organization so you can focus on that particular skill. I mean, there's no such thing as a perfectly balanced uh, executive or or employee. They're good at certain things and they're very poor at others. And they have to understand where they're strong and where they're weak. And then they have to communicate that and say, hey, look, I'm a little weak here. I noticed you really love doing that. Can you help me with this section so as a team we can do more? Is there any Anything I can do for you type of thing. That that takes us, that's exactly right, and it takes us right to the chapter you mentioned before, which is reciprocal mentoring. We're not all good at the same things, and um, we are doing ourselves a favor if we can be as clear-eyed as possible about what our strengths and relative weaknesses are, and one way to do that is to uh, find feedback, and another one is just to keep track of things. But a great way to grow is to go to somebody um, whose skill set is different than yours. And maybe they're a different uh, age or gender or um, professional uh, technical expertise or whatever it is and, and trade. Now, there's a section in here about um, tardiness and, and uh, being tardy is not cool. But I want to flip that on its head. You know, there's some people that just have a really hard time with time. I mean, I'm very time conscious and I, my watch is actually 10 minutes fast. So even if I am late, I'm not late. But there are other people that are always late and it's just the way they are. And you, how do you deal with it? How do you, how do you manage it? Like uh, the way I manage is actually is I'll tell people, oh, the meeting's at, uh, you know, 9.50, but the actual meeting's at 10 to give them that extra opportunity so that when they come in late, they're, at least they're not 20 minutes late, they're only 10 minutes late. Yeah, and, and, and there are cultural differences. I had done some work um, with uh, Latina organizations, and everybody is always late. And I say at the beginning, if we're working on the project, let's just help me understand the rules. If the meeting is at 9 and you want to have time to chat and you don't really want to do any work till 9.30, let me know. So everybody has to understand the same thing. It's, again, a clear-eyed look. And if you are um, um, yourself somebody who's inclined to be late, 
you have to know that there are costs, that you're basically stealing somebody else's time if they're waiting for you and give yourself a different deadline. You, you, it's, a, it's something that, that if, you're, if you're in the Army, if you're in all kinds of organizations, you learn how to do it. I mean, you can learn how to do it even if you don't feel like it. In terms of dealing with other people, although I'm compulsively early myself, <laughs> I, um, you know, I was sitting here waiting for your call 15 minutes before, even though I knew exactly when it was coming in. I just can't help it. <laughs> but what I found is I don't mind waiting for other people because it's found time. I always have uh, something to read, something to do, something to enjoy, and um, with with friends and colleagues who I know uh, just can't manage their time, I make a plan to use that time in a way that's good for me. But at, at the same time, if I am working with somebody or coaching somebody, I know how they have a problem. I want to make sure they understand the cost that the the uh, what they're giving up in order to uh, be indulgent about their sense of time. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand that just because they're 10 minutes late doesn't mean that they cost the group 10 minutes. If there's five people in that room, that's 50 minutes of time you've wasted. That's an hour's worth of time. And with larger projects, especially if there's production involved, um, if you're late by one day, that adds seven days to the deadline. And I'll, I'll bring this up at the very beginning of a project. Say, look, just let you know, these deadlines are pretty hard. If you miss it, it's not one day we're going to move the whole project ahead. The whole project get ahead moved ahead seven days. And if you're late by a week, we move it ahead by a month. So just be aware of that. And they freak out. So what are you talking about? It's, well, let's backtrack and I'll actually explain it. It's okay, 10 minutes late for this meeting, which means we lost an hour, which means basically one hour equals a quarter of a day, which can mean a half a day, which means that, oh, look, we just lost two and a half days because you were 10 minutes late. And they go, oh, that's so harsh. I, I said, look, I'm just trying to explain to you if the project is really, really tight at the end, that is because we've lost 10 minutes 15 or 20 times over the process of the, of, of the process. That's a really good way of, of stating it, and it's that same thing of taking a clear-eyed look by measuring about measuring whatever it is involved. So, so you know, and then you can make a choice: is is this cost um, one I'm willing to pay, or that um, I have a choice about paying? Yeah, yeah. You know, and and it's you know, it because I'm responsible. I'm project managing. That's my job is to let everybody know. These are the deadlines, and please fit to them. And if and if you're not going to be able to make it, let me know, and I will try and work around it. I'm not I'm not going to be crazy about this thing. I will work around situations, but I just don't want people coming in and using it willy nilly as an excuse. So it, I think if you're very time conscious, you like you said, you have to plan for it. You cannot get uptight with people that are notoriously late because you already know that. So. Why would you blame them for being late? You should be blaming yourself for not being prepared to spend that time that you know you were going to spend doing something productive. Yeah, there's no sense um, making yourself miserable because you don't like the way other people operate. They're different from you. Your challenge is to keep things moving smoothly. Um, and I, all of these things I think of like weather. You know, if it's raining, it's annoying, traffic's worse, you got to carry an umbrella, whatever. But you deal with it. And 
there are organizations there there's weather and uh it doesn't um help you in any way to be miserable about it what you do is you um be as uh clear about the forecast as you can and you deal with it yeah, I think you can just get, definitely get – it's addictive. I mean, everybody likes to complain about stuff. Oh, my car. I hate my car. I wish I had a car like that. And I was listening to uh, Louis C.K., who's a very funny guy, and he was just – somebody said, well, yeah, car. I want a jetpack. And he turns to the person and said, look, if you had a jetpack, you would be complaining about your jetpack. You would say, oh, this is the worst jetpack. It doesn't work. My maintenance package is big. It's human nature to basically bitch about stuff because we feel that it's a social way for us to like dump our anxieties on people. So I wanted to ask you, how do people deal with stress and anxiety in an effective way? Well, there's so many ways. Um, the more um, researchers look at neuroscience and look at stress, the more we realize there are lots of options. I, I think that um, part of it is... Um, getting back to that same voice in your head that I started talking about, I can see with clients when something bad happens, when there's a challenge, when they're worried about something, there's the thing, the thing they're worried about. But sometimes what is keeping them up at night isn't the thing. It's the way they catastrophize, the way they talk to themselves about how horrible it is. So you have a new boss, you're not getting along with them, but you toss and turn and you're thinking this person is terrible and you, you, um, your own commentary can make things worse and that can set off a stress reaction that's physically debilitating. So the first thing you do is you notice your own voice and I think there are lots of meditation techniques that can be either as simple as having a few deep breaths and focusing on your breath or walking. Walking is a wonderful way to deal with stress because it's, it changes your body chemistry. It's inherently meditative. And so if you can take some time off in the course of the day, um, that's, that's a great way to, to manage your stress. The first thing is to notice what is stress mean for you. Do you feel it in your body? Is it a voice in your head? Are you feeling depressed? You know, sit down and every time you say, I'm so stressed, write about your symptoms as, as specific as, oh, my shoulders ache because I've raised them or whatever it is. And then start addressing um, the symptoms. And there are lots and lots of uh, books about lots and lots of strategies. But it begins with noticing. Mm. Yeah, it's being, it goes all the way back to being conscious. I mean, I remember going to an amazing seminar about uh, dealing with your inner gremlins and basically said like 50% of the battle is realizing you have uh, gremlins inside that that are bitching about stuff and are never going to be happy and it, it's it's this self-deprecation stuff that's going on in the back of you and it's going on subliminally a lot of time with people so if you can stop and say okay why am I bitching about this and go inside your head and basically take your voice and yell at it and say hey I get that I'm not listening to you anymore go to hell and then continue on with your day yeah you can you can argue back with the gremlin Another thing that can be really simple, though, is that you um, can notice how it is that the stress feels bad. Like if um, you tend to have tight shoulders, and I use that example because I tend to have tight shoulders, and I raise my shoulders, and I lean forward, and I clench my fists. Well, I've learned if I uh, do some exercises and 
uh, relax my shoulders and kind of lean back. When I let my body go, when I let the pain in my body go and just relax, then whatever it is that I'm worried about is also relaxed a bit. You can you can relax things by um, your your mentally by your voice, or you can relax things physically or emotionally, and all of those things work. You know when you know we live in a world of of mass communication and and you know things happening all the time, hundreds of emails coming in every day. Then we got social media to deal with. How do we deal with this crazy influx of data and information that we're we're managing every day? It, there's got to be some tips and tricks to to you know overcoming the tsunami of 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 content that we're dealing with. Yeah, it's it's tough. I I keep uh, this is one of those areas I keep trying to read and see what the research says, and I I think it does vary from person to person. But one thing that really works for a lot of people is to do things in blocks and kind of chunks. We get um, basically addicted to checking new email, checking our tablet, whatever it is. So we it keeps interrupting our work, our, our life, uh, and it takes a certain amount of energy to switch from what you're doing and check the email or whatever list you're looking at. If you can learn to batch a bunch of things so that you set aside um, this hour to catch up on your email or review whatever uh, site you have to and do that and then turn it off for a while. Uh, that does seem to be to be very helpful for a lot of people. You save a lot of the waste time that comes from transferring from one thing to another, but also you... Uh, you learn to um, kind of calm down that addiction, which is 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 inherently um, stressful. That that little ping that says check, it's like you know a constant mosquito bite, and it's good to put that aside. I think this is going to be a big area, though, of of uh, further study because we've just never had uh, generations who've grown up in the midst midst of this, and um, we're all going to have to learn new ways to, to deal with the barrage. Yeah, I think a, a lot of the pressure right now is, and you kind of touch on ageism, but it, it's the ability to stay uh, in touch. Like I've got uh, friends that are just a little bit older than me, and they are just, they just they have a hard time attaching a document to an email, and they just plead, "Oh, I'm just no good at stuff like this." And so you can't say that anymore. Basically, you're saying, "Oh, I'm illiterate," and if you you wouldn't go into a situation or or a business and say, "Oh, I'm illiterate," that would be very very bad thing to do. But these people are saying, "Oh, yeah, I'm no good at email. You'll have to call me." It's like, no, you have to get good at email because that's how everyone. And oh, I never text, or my phone doesn't text. Well, if you're going to be managing millennials, you have to text. They don't answer the phone, and if they do, they don't communicate well with it because they communicate well by texting. So you have to be able to grow into the new forms of communication. So I wanted to ask you. How do you perpetually grow? How do you stay young in your approach to uh, the way other people communicate? Well, the first thing you do is you accept the premise that you just laid out. If you're going to be in the game, you have to know how the game is played. So 
if you are in a business environment, an organizational environment, you absolutely have to master the tools of communication that are used there or used in the way this group, this entity, this business interacts with the public with the public. That's that's just the starting point. And and then you um set some priorities. I um feel like I'm pretty adept with say Twitter. Um though a lot of my peers are not uh, because I think Twitter is a, an important part of following business news. I've got a Snapchat account, but you know, I and I know it's a, it's it's very hot, but I don't really need to use it for business. So, in the case of uh, the priority of Snapchat, I just need to know how it works. So, that if there's an audience that I want to reach for some reason and I might need help or I might decide to develop the expertise, I know that that exists and I know that I'm capable of starting to use it or of getting somebody to manage that channel for me. You have to know um, what other people are using. You have to decide what the top priorities are so that you can focus your attention there, and you have to decide if you need some other strategy to have people assist you with the channels that you're not going to follow. But the last thing you do is say, oh, it's too much for me, or I just don't do that. That, that as you said, is, is a form of literacy. And if you're technically, techn- but if you're IT illiterate, you are going to cut off so many of your professional opportunities that um, you won't even know about them, though, because you're not up to date. Yeah, yeah, you won't you won't hear about it in Twitter. You know, when you when you set out to write this book, who were you targeting? Were you were you targeting a, a very broad spectrum, or was it um, the the millennials, or was it like anybody in business? I mean, who do you think needs to read this book the most? Well, the audience that I w- was originally writing a lot of these pieces for has has not necessarily been the same one that I've been hearing from. I I tend to um, work with professionals who are fairly um, high up in uh, or successful uh, in their profession, just because I do a lot of um, one-on-one coaching and that costs money or, or I'm working with an organization that tends to provide coaching for their more senior people. And so in my head, I was talking to my clients when I did the first draft of a lot of these. But I'm also associated with um, a university, Ohio University, and I really love working with the students. And the more I wrote, the more I started thinking about them. And when I look at the feedback and the um from to the book and the events I've most enjoyed, um, it, it turns out to be people who are just starting their career that I think um, the book is uh, seems to be resonating with the most, partly because it is succinct. You don't have to listen to a whole lot of stuff. You um, can, um, it, it's like a, a survival guide for um we, I do a lot with interns in Washington. It's, it can be a survival guide for interns in the big city because it opens the door to, you know, a lot of the, I think, the the hidden rules and, and survival techniques. Uh, I love Chapter 40, Using those, Use Those Amazing Checklists. Let's talk a little bit about that. Checklists are oh, an amazing phenomenon. They've been used in places like in emergency rooms because 
research has suggested that no matter how experienced you are, it's human to make mistakes. And in fact, if you've done things many, many times, you're even more likely to skip a step because you feel like you can. Or, you know, when you've said something so many times, you start to lose track. You you just forget things if you've done it many times. So a lot of very um, serious places like um, in um, airplanes and in emergency rooms, um, checklists have been used to keep people on track. And it can be about things that are very simple. What's the name of the patient? What leg is going to be operated on? Those kind of things. But it has resulted in fewer accidents. And I find it's the same working with tasks that are done uh, more than once, tasks that you're trying to get other people to do, like events. It can be something like a meeting or a conference or a party. Um, if you're in your organization or in your own life, if you routinely do an, some kind of event, it can be getting ready for Thanksgiving. Keep a list of everything that needs to be done, a kind of a generic list, and it takes all the worry out of it the next time uh, the event comes up. Say, if you are if you have a routine staff meeting, the things on the list are having the agenda, um, sending out the invitation, sending out the follow-ups, who's going to keep track, how are you going to follow up on the items that um, arise during the meeting. And I, I find with my clients, um, many times when they're struggling to manage a project and they haven't thought of it as a project, but that's what it is, or they're trying to um, take some of the stress out of their life, if you can write it down in the form of a checklist that you keep editing as you go along, you, you've taken the worry out of your head, you've stopped wasting time worrying about things, and you've reduced it to a form that you can actually rely on uh, without worry because you've masterminded it. Yeah, I love organizations that kind of I, I call them wikis, and and uh, you know every everything has a procedure and is written down because if somebody in the organization, anybody from the receptionist all the way up to the CEO, if they're unavailable, if they get hurt, um, and they're outside of the organization for days or weeks at a time, people have to be able to access what procedures need to be done and they have to be done right so the organization can move forward and that's as simple as like when you come into the office how do you turn off the alarm all the way up to when we have a x crisis who would be the person that would be able to handle this if the boss isn't there absolutely and and you can do it in your own um life what do you what do you do if uh, the boss is away or how do you prepare for this event or what are the steps you do in doing the research for this annual report? So if you reduce your work, if it's at all repetitive or uh, likely to happen in an emergency, if you reduce it to a list of items, you're prepared in a way that puts you way ahead of the game. Well, it also helps to, I mean, there's there's tremendous ROI and, and ROT return on time for new staff because you can literally say, oh, um, welcome to day one. Please read these five pages. And the pages start, hi, you're new here. These are all the things that you need to know. This is the attitude you should have, blah, blah, blah. Because as a person starting on their first day, 
they have so many questions and if those if somebody's not assigned to them or they don't have that information given to them then they have to go bother people that are busy and it's a really bad way to start a relationship in an organization i i totally agree but i'd like to add one caveat to what we've just been talking about and that mm-hmm. is that um checklists are wonderful i love them but they shouldn't be regarded as as carved in stone. Uh, the checklist can be a great communication tool for making things better. And when you're using them in a group or you're handing them to a new employee, there should always be an invitation um, that if there's a better way to do it, let's talk about it. By reducing things to a plan, by reducing things to a list, you can see what's actually being done. And if somebody can say, hey, if we change this step or if we combine those two, we could save this amount of time. So it's a great way to innovate in small ways because it forces you to actually look at what you're doing. And um, uh, the opportunity um, to, to make things even better is part of the thing that the list can bring. Yeah, it's it's um, it's like a business plan. It's got to evolve. You can't just write a business plan, put it in your drawer, and say, "Well, we made a business plan. Now let's get start businesses." No, that's that's your guidebook. You have to go back. You have to evolve it. You have to change it. You have to pivot. Uh, if you go into business thinking that your original plan and idea is going to be what you're ending up with, you're not going to be in business for very long. That's so true, and and it feels like. Um, that's the case more and more. You know, that's the where thinking like an entrepreneur comes in. Uh, you have to be realistic and know that you got to keep listening and keep tweaking. Oh, absolutely! I love this uh, this title. Know how to herd cats. You know, I, I was a creative director for many many years, and uh, <laughs> it's like herding cats if you're working in an art department. Yeah, it's not always easy to manage your peers and it's a real trick to help people move in the direction that the group needs to go one of the things takes us back to our you know the first thing we talked about today is um is listening but but also um getting consensus about what's what's the game here what what's the mission what's the point of being here what are we trying to achieve who are our uh, clients, if if you can get all of your collaborators sort of on the same page, then even if you're not the boss, even if you're trying to move this, this group of, of artistic people who are changing things around, if you're all trying to do the same thing, at least that's a big starting point. What should people do today uh, to start, you know, moving toward thinking like an entrepreneur, and acting more like a CEO? Well, I think um, the first thing to do is is to ask themselves, why are they asking this question? What is it they want to have that's um, different in their life or, or in their work? Um, that's the first thing. And then the next thing, thinking like an entrepreneur, thinking like a leader, is um, to ask, all right, who do I have to serve? Who do I have to please? Who do I have to sell to? Who are my customers? Um, what audience do I have to reach in order to get this thing I want in my life? Um, and, you know, and kind of writing this down, writing these questions down, 
who do I have to please in order to succeed? Make a list and then kind of develop your your theory. Listen and try to identify what are the things that you can do that you can offer, that you can provide in order to serve this customer. And the customer can be your colleague. I'm That's customer in quotes, I should say. <laughs> um, know what it is that people need and want from you and think about ways that you can get it to them. And that will help you, you know, progress along your your path. So um, sit down, think, what will success look like? Who are the people I need to satisfy or please or meet in order to create success? What do they want from me? And what's the list of things I can do to get them those things? Now, in the book, you also mentioned one of my favorite things, which is the 80-20 rule, which is such an amazing phenomenon. You, you, you first hear about this, and, and they go, no, that can't be true. And the, once you understand it, it just crops up all over the place. It's such a, a fascinating, amazing um, piece of data. So for you, what do you think, you know, how, how do you use the 80-20 rule to, to be the things that you want people to be through your book? Well, the the first thing you do is you decide, what do I want out of my career? If you're thinking in really big terms, you know, why am I working? What do I want here? Or if you're thinking about how do I organize today, you say, okay, I've got this long list of things. I've got this huge to-do list. What are the few things? What are the 20% of the items on my to-do list that will make this a successful day? And you look at your calendar and you spend most of your time on that 20% of things that will make it a great day today. And then the other stuff, you batch together, you say no, you leave it out, you just put it aside. But you put most of your time on the things that will really make a, the day a, a good day. And if you do that day after day and kind of tightly manage the bulk of things and really concentrate on the things that are going to deliver value and make the day work, you're going to make progress. So think you know, ask yourself every day, maybe what three things, if I accomplish them today, will mean at the end of the day I've made some progress. Where do you think people should go to learn more about the book? Um, do you have a, a blog that they can visit? I, I have um, a blog, and you can get to it from my website, www.clearwaysconsulting.com. That's C-L-E-A-R-W-A-Y-S consulting.com uh, and the book of course is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the places that you normally can find books. We've been talking about the book Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO and I've had Beverly with me today. It's been wonderful chatting with you and uh, you are truly charming. Thank you, Bob. I've enjoyed it very much. I just realized I've, I kind of forgot for a minute it wasn't just the two of us. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week. <laughs>